Hi, I'm Katrina Daniel, and welcome to Primetime Crime, a podcast for people who want to know what goes on behind the scenes of the most notorious trending crime stories and what's going on in the minds of those involved in those stories. What are the detectives, the judges, the defense attorneys, and the prosecutors thinking? You'll hear it all on Primetime Crime, the podcast. This is Primetime Crime, and I'm Katrina Daniel, and we're calling today's episode Snitching 101, a primer. First, you've all watched CSI shows where CIs or confidential informants are used. In street slang, a CI is a snitch, a criminal who rats out fellow criminals in order to get a lesser sentence for himself or herself. Let's not be sexist here. The most high-profile snitch these days is Enrique Tarrio, the self-proclaimed leader of the so-called Proud Boys, the Capitol Rioters, where Enrique proudly featured himself in his wannabe pseudo-riot gear and his backwards ball cap. So, Enrique committed health care fraud back in 2012. To get out of those charges and save himself prison time, he offered to rat out other criminals that he knew. His defense attorney at the time, Miami's Jeff Filer, a really good guy actually, told the judge, quote, Your Honor, in all my 30-plus years of practice, I've never had a client as prolific in terms of cooperating, unquote. It is documented that Enrique Tarrio's snitching helped convict 13 criminals on drug, gambling, and human trafficking charges. Enrique Tarrio cooperated in both state and federal cases. So, let's hear how this snitching process works from two legal stars. My guests today, Prosecutor Michael Band and Defense Attorney Bruce Fleischer. Thanks, guys. Let's do Snitching 101. Let's hear what NBC6 reporter Jamie Garola has to say. Yeah, well, according to federal court records from 2014, the now leader of the Proud Boys, who lives right here in Miami, worked very closely with the FBI, Miami police, and Hialeah police, all in exchange for a reduced sentence. Well, if you're in the Proud Boys, you've got to be pretty nervous, because if this person was working as a confidential informant, almost like an undercover agent or a secret agent for law enforcement, you wonder, what is it that he could be saying about us someday? Newly released court transcripts from seven years ago reveal a surprising past for the leader of the Proud Boys, a far-right extremist group involved in the Capitol riot. Records say Henry Enrique Tarrio started working with the FBI after he was arrested in 2013 on federal fraud charges. It's very common for people convicted to cooperate with law enforcement. Kendall Coffey is a former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida. He was not involved in Tarrio's case. Documents show that in arguing for a reduced sentence, prosecutors said the 36-year-old helped federal law enforcement agencies prosecute 13 other people in two indictments. If you're the group that's being infiltrated, though, you're going to call him a snitch. Fast forward to January 4th, 2021, a couple days before the Capitol riots. Tario allegedly found with two high-capacity gun magazines and destroying a Black Lives Matter sign at a historic church. At least five members of the Proud Boys were later arrested in connection with the attack in Washington, D.C. So, Bruce Fleischer, as a criminal defense attorney, Tell me how the snitching or confidential informant process works. Well, it's actually called cooperating. And what happens is that uh, you're representing a client 
it may be a new case and you're contacted by the government, you know, perhaps at the uh, pretrial detention hearing and um, you're trying to get your client bond and you may not get him bond. And at the end of the hearing, the prosecutors say, well, you know, we'd be interested in talking with your client as to what he knows and if he wants to help himself out. And our normal response is, well, let me take a look at the discovery first to see what type of case you have. And uh, you can open up a line of communications with prosecutors along those lines. And of course, you deal with the client first and tell the client that the government is interested in talking to him or her and what do they want to do. And you have to talk to them about the pitfalls of being a cooperator or an informant because it could be quite dangerous depending on the case that you're involved in and the, and the people who the government wants your client to cooperate against. Bruce, pretend I'm your client. I've just been busted for healthcare fraud, shall we say. Okay. okay. Um, I sure as heck don't want to go to jail or prison. My chances at trial, I think, if, if I'm semi-smart, are not really good in this, in this day and time. What are you going to talk to me? Are you going to approach uh, the prosecution? Tell me how you'll handle it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to probably sit down and have an hour conference with the prosecutor about the status of the case and all of that. I'm going to look into the sentencing guidelines as to the fraud loss amount and what the exposure of the client is and um, talk to the client about, you know, you can help yourself if you want to. There's something called a 5K1, which is uh, under the rules of criminal procedure to get a reduction at sentencing. And there's a rule 35, which is to get a reduction at a later time after your sentencing. And that's usually if the client cooperates with the government and the government informs the court of the cooperation. Clients always say, I don't want to go to jail. And there are situations where you have to tell the client you are going to jail based upon the severity of this case, based upon you're involved in uh, a large fraud loss amount of, let's say, you know, 15 to $20 million, because that's what the guidelines reflect, and whether or not it was a sophisticated means, and whether you, client, were involved in all of this, and what was your role in it. And tell me what you can tell me about yourself and your involvement. I'll analyze it, and then I'll have a, another conference with the government as to what you may be able to do for them and what they can do for you. But it's so usually what, a one-way street. What do you mean it's a one-way street? It's a two-way street, isn't it? Well, it's supposed to be a two-way street, but the government always wants information. And they want to proffer from you as to what your client knows. And there's a, a queen for a day letter that's executed, which means that if your client sits down and talks to the feds, um, this cannot be used against them in a trial. Uh, unless they testify in a trial and don't like the deal. And if they're inconsistent with what they've told the government in a debriefing, they can introduce those statements against the client. All right. So tell us what a queen for a day statement is. That sounds like something funny, interesting, and yet works on behalf of your client. It, it comes under federal rule 11. We're talking about federal now, although there are there is cooperation in state cases. And it basically says that you have an opportunity to sit down and talk with the government and debrief and tell them what you know. And um, you have to be truthful, number one. 
And number two, they don't like crimes of violence um, and homicides and things like that when you're talking to them. So the main thing is to be honest with the government. Don't ever withhold information. Don't ever lie about anything. And you know that if you can't make the deal, that what you said to the government cannot be used against you directly in a trial. However, they can use the information you gave against yourself and others to develop other aspects of the case and even evidence against you as a defendant. So, Michael, as a prosecutor, do you ever approach the defense and say, we know your client knows a lot about such and such gang activity, such and such human trafficking, or has knowledge of other crimes? Let's talk and we can either do away with the sentence completely or greatly reduce it. All the time. Um, as Bruce pointed out, um, sometimes it occurs uh, post-arrest after the individual has been taken into custody um, and he's now aware there is a case. The better time from a prosecutor's standpoint is to approach individuals before an arrest to get them to cooperate, um, perhaps even use them as an agent to make uh, phone calls, um, meet in person where they are wired up uh, so they're capable of recording a conversation. But uh, prosecutors are not loath to sit down with people they've targeted um, and acknowledge they're bad people, but they believe that the greater good would be to get the cooperation of the individual as a witness in the hope and in the pursuit of a much larger target. Can you give me a specific case that you remember without mentioning the client, the defendant, or the prosecution of a scenario that worked really well in, in the snitching, confidential informing? I can think of a federal case where I was a prosecutor where we probably had as many as 10 different individuals who were cooperators. Um, probably half, um, maybe a little more than half, began their cooperation beforehand. Um, that is, before they were able to provide um, somewhat unique information um, and even allow us to make recorded conversations. Then post-arrest, because there was, you know, wound up being something like, oh, I don't know, I think 12 people ultimately went to trial, but maybe the original um, organization had upwards of 15 to 20, 25 people uh, during the course of the trial. And it wound up, in that case, with a very successful prosecution. I think to add to that, and Mike will confirm this, there's usually a knock at your door or a telephone call from the FBI or the DEA, and they're going to say, we know what you've been doing, we've investigated you, and we'd like to sit down and talk. And of course, the client, if they're smart, will call Michael or I or another attorney to ask advice on what should they do. That happens quite a bit, where they'll get a letter from the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office that says, you may or may not be a target of investigation, but we'd like to talk to you. And that gets the ball rolling pre-arrest, shall we say. Michael Band, is this a valuable tool for you? It's an extremely valuable tool as a prosecutor. Um, there is always the balance. Um, jurors don't particularly like um, cooperators. Um, 
I can recall actually in a case I, I mentioned before, uh, the defense attorney had a plastic rat that he left on the desk, his desk, um, and uh, it squeaked. I remember that. And he used it uh, to some effect during the course of his cross-examination uh, of the cooperators. Um, you know, the goal of prosecution is to convict guilty people. Smart um, criminals often insulate themselves from the crime, particularly people higher up in the organization. Um, so between him or her and an individual on the street, there might be several layers of people so that the individual on the street may have heard of the individual at the top of the organization, but has never met with them, never spoken with her, um, never had direct contact. So as a prosecutor, to, uh, to work my way up, and obviously the best way to go is to work your way up from bottom to top. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes you work your way down in reverse order, which uh, is, again, problematic to jurors. But it is a theory of prosecution that's, again, used to great effect. People are called out from it. The most obvious example is when uh, the government used Sammy the Bull Gravano against John Gotti. There was an individual responsible for, I think, 19 murders. And the government gave them really pretty much a pass on that. But they believed that uh, Sammy's connection with Gotti uh, was unique, uh, was important, and could supply a jury an insider's view of the organization and the culpability of Gotti and, and others. So they made a deal. I mean, uh, a lot of people were offended by it. Um, in the end, Gotti was convicted. I had a similar experience when I was representing John Connolly. The government flipped all the hitmen, and one of them, John Martirano, pled guilty to, I think, about a 20-year sentence for 18 murders that were documented. And uh, he came in to testify against John Connolly, along with all the other people from the organization. And um, the government said, we have to use people like this because we have to fight corruption and it's justice as any means. But a lot of jurors don't like that. When you hear someone like that, Sammy the Bull Gravano testify, or John Martirano, about how many people they killed, and that they kind of getting away with murder. Let's go back to Enrique Tarrio for a moment, guys. What is your take on his being dubbed a prolific cooperator? Prolific, I guess, in this uh, suggests that he cooperated in all manner of cases. And from the articles I've read, there were at least three or four or five different kinds of cases he cooperated. Unfortunately, um, the system is replete with individuals who swim in that criminal realm. Um, and they obviously are the best people to have their fingers on the pulse of crime. And they uh, like uh, Tario, may not just know drug trafficking, they may also know human smugglers or other things. Uh, I mean, the government then winds up sometimes, and I think in this case with a black eye, because they use Mr. Tario to their advantage and, and gain convictions. But then uh, it's not like uh, he changed and uh, flew this straight and narrow. 
sometimes leopards cannot change their spots. And it continued doing crimes. And often is the case is someone like that will get an advantage by cooperating, um, will get released, and he's basically a criminal and will continue his criminal ways until he's caught again. And then he knows how the system works. And the first thing he will do is call his former control agent or prosecutor and say, hey, uh, I know about a bunch of other stuff, but I got this uh, monkey on my back. I need a little assistance. Um, so there's nothing candidly unusual about Tario's situation. It just becomes perhaps uh, more magnified because of his relationship with this organization. So, Bruce, what do you, what's your take on Enrique Tario and his prolific cooperation? What surprised me most of all was that the government released the information that he was a former informant. So early in the game, in the prosecution of all these people who uh, stormed the Capitol on Jan 6th, normally that doesn't come out until later on and discovery is, is turned out and there's something called Brady material and Giglio material. And it's all supposed to be the favorable evidence to the defendant. Anything that could be interpreted as favorable to the defendant, the government must turn over. So I, I don't know who pulled the trigger on exposing Tario as an informant so early in the game, but I'm surprised that the government did that. Um, I think Reuters and Washington Post and New York Times did a lot of digging and they just went through court records and it wasn't sealed. His was a healthcare fraud that he pled guilty to in 2012. Right. And then and then became both a federal and a state confidential informant. If you're going to be nice, snitch. If you're going to call a spade a spade. Sometimes people say snitches get stitches, you know. Who knows uh, what's going to happen. And now, you know, what do the Proud Boys and that organization think of him? From everything I've read, they're not happy about this. Do you think he's in danger? I, I think he should have some concerns, yes. Is there any safeguard, anything he can do to save himself? Michael? Um, well, assuming that he has given information concerning the Proud Boys uh, to the government, uh, which alleges uh, criminal acts on their part, and the government views him as an important witness, he certainly would be eligible for uh, the witness protection program. You know, he can't carry a gun himself. He's a convicted uh, felon um, that may or may not stop someone. Uh, but, uh, you know, the question remains, and I don't know the answer to this, is whether or not he has supplied information to the government about the Proud Boy organization. Um, if he has, um, uh, you know, the government can be looking to bring him in. Uh, if he hasn't, I'm sure the Proud Boys themselves, as Bruce has indicated, uh, express some frustration some concern that if they have broken the law in any fashion, that he's a weak link. And what do you do with weak links? Um, so I don't know where this stands and whether or not he is cooperating with the government in regard to the insurgency on the Capitol, whether he has information or not, whether he just has some general information about the organization. But I would think uh, the exposure of his past as a major or prolific cooperator 
would be of concern to him, would be con- uh, of concern to the Proud Boys, and potentially would be of concern to law enforcement if they anticipate using him in future prosecutions. Bruce, do you have anything to add to that? Oh, I agree with Mike 100%. And, you know, back to the Connolly case, you know, Connolly was the alleged corrupt FBI agent from Boston who was tied in with the mob. And the two people that he was the handler for were Whitey Bulger and Stevie Fleming. And it came out that those two people were informants for the government for the last 20 years, if you believe the government's case. Fleming actually pled guilty and testified against Conley to avoid the death penalty. And Bulger became a fugitive. And of course, you know, he was found uh, much later in Santa Monica. He went to trial in Boston. He was convicted. And then he was murdered in prison in a very ugly way uh, because people in the prison didn't like informants. Although Bulger always denied the fact that he was an informant. He died denying that he was an informant. But he died anyway. He died anyway. The cooperation tool is one that the government uses daily. Um, And it remains a very useful uh, tool in the government's um, toolbox. And they want to keep it. So for them to allow for an informant to get exposed or hurt or killed is not something that the government, I believe, would contemplate. What I think the government is looking at in the January 6th riot is they are collecting all the social media from all the people who were arrested and all the people they think were involved and all the people who in any way went on social media and talked about their organizations and what they were going to do. And I think that the FBI probably has a task force of people putting this all together. They may use it for Trump's impeachment. They may use it in the event that the DOJ decides to indict the ex-president. And social media can be powerful evidence. And in a case that Mike and I tried two years ago, a RICO case, there are over a thousand posts of social media that the government introduced which uh, was very strong evidence against our clients of guilt. So they're looking at Terrio's social media. They probably subpoenaed his cell records, his text, you know, anything that he sent to find out, okay, what has this guy done in connection with January 6th or in, you know, uh, anti-government activities? I think they'll find a lot of fodder there, not only just for Enrique Tarrio, but for all the others who say, look at me, what an instigator I am, as did some guy from West Virginia, because he was charged with insurrection. They're going to be looking over their shoulders for the rest of their lives, unless they get witness protection. And even that isn't a guarantee, is it, Michael? Um, There's never any guarantees. Life rarely has a guarantee. The only thing I might add is... Um, rarely would a juror accept uh, the testimony of a cooperator on its own, which is why the prosecutor will attempt to buttress it in in any of a number of ways. A recording, you know, where the uh, cooperator is actually talking to the target of the investigation, which will confirm what the individual has to say. Are there others that will confirm what the cooperator has to say. 
yes, I was in this location and there's four or five other people will attest to being in in that location do, as Bruce suggested, do a cell phone records uh, match. Um, but as a prosecutor, rarely would they base a case upon the testimony of a sole cooperator. Uh, the case I referenced earlier, we had about 10 cooperators. Candidly, what I think happened in that case was that uh, a juror might not believe one or two or even three cooperators. Um, but as more and more people came in there and they established their bona fides in terms of their knowledge of the organization, um, their connection with the target or other members of the organization, jurors then would tend to buy into uh, their testimony. Um, but again, as a prosecutor, I want to make sure that the cooperator's testimony you know, has enough corroboration and will not stand alone. But, uh, you know, there's enough background in there where a juror can say, yeah, I have every reason to believe this, as opposed to why would I believe this guy? He got a deal. Alman, thank you both for your time. I know we'll be talking to you again in the future. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with Enrique Tarrio and the Proud Boys and whether there'll be any retaliation against him. Because right now he's just denying he ever cooperated. Well, we'll stay tuned and thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Take thank care. You. Stay thank safe. You. Bye, guys. When it became public that Enrique Tarrio was a huge snitch, his fellow Proud Boys were understandably upset. In a recent interview, Enrique told Reuters that, quote, he never cooperated, and if he did, he didn't recall. Exact quote. Darn those pesky court records. That's today's Primetime Crime. I'm Katrina Daniel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Primetime Crime, the podcast. Follow us on Facebook at Primetime Crime and on Instagram and Twitter at Primetime Crime underscore. Post your comments and tell us what true crime stories you'd like to hear about. Subscribe to Primetime Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Thanks a lot.